1: Welsh History Podcast, episode 124, The Treaty of 1404. We've talked last time about the reasons for the French to take up arms on behalf of the Welsh rebels. The French themselves were in a bit of a bind because, as and this is something we really haven't talked about yet, the victory of the Percy's at Hummeldon Hill, which effectively destroyed the ability of the Scots to carry on a war against... The English created a circumstance where one of the main allies of France during the wars with the English had been defeated and not just defeated but effectively had most of their military leadership either killed or captured. Most of the knights in Scotland had been at that battle and so they were lost to the Scots. Only just a couple of years after this date The heir apparent of Scotland, Prince James, was captured in 1406 and would not be released from English custody until 1424. This meant that the Scots were without military or political leadership to mount any sort of challenge to England. This also meant that most of the opposition came in the form of unsanctioned raiding and high seas piracy in Scotland and from Scotland rather than from the government-approved alliance this meant that a war on two fronts which might have been exactly what the welsh needed to force the english to the peace table could not happen without the pressure to the north you have to imagine henry was in reasonable shape to direct resources against the welsh and thus the welsh didn't have any reasonable allies to go to on the island to assist them i think this is part of the reason why the percy rebellion was significant to glindur as instead of external pressure, you now have internal pressure. The finances needed to fight what might have turned into a two-front war would likely have bankrupt Henry, and almost did anyway. And as well, it gave Glendure the opportunity to have someone else in the North who was putting constant pressure on the English divided forces, as we... you. You know any rudimentary study of military history will tell you have a very difficult time responding to things if they're continually having to run north and south and the reality of it was at this point is for the most part the english were already reacting to the welsh incursions and not actually being proactive but if there's no other enemy to fight then all of a sudden you could have a point where the english catch up financially and from a tax perspective and from a military perspective that they could then turn it on the welsh and there would be not very much that the welsh could do to defend themselves that's the kind of thing that we're looking at in this circumstance so it makes perfect sense why glindur would go to the french and we've talked a little bit about this but i want to get in further depth on some of this today um and so Glyndor had to send for help and hope that the French would commit enough to the campaign to allow him to gain the independence for Wales. So when his ambassador Griffith Young and the Bishop of Bangor arrived in France, he knew he needed their help and he knew the French were the best suited country to assist them in war. Of course, the only neighbor that was independent and had the military in stock, if you want to put it that way, to actually put themselves into this war in an effective method. You have to remember that in medieval Europe, you don't have a lot, of fan- a lot of superpowers or a lot of very big countries. Most of them at this point are broken up and split from what we imagined. There was no Germany. It was a fiefdom of petty kingdoms that made up what was called the Holy Roman Empire. Italy was not a country. It was broken up into many different city-states and and small nations, and Spain at this stage is still divided between the Christians and the Muslims, and they're effectively at war at this point to try and reconquest the, the area. So there's no really good alternatives for the Welsh at this point. Really, France is the only major country that can actually help them in Europe, and... That's a major reason why they turned to him. And obviously, the French and the English have been fighting for years now. And so there's a lot of hostility on both sides. And there's a lot of reasons why they would want to do this. As mentioned last episode, for a variety of reasons, the French were at peace with the English. But, as I said, we're still at a hostile level. Those that supported the English and the French court were on the decline, which worked out well for the Welsh. The Orleans were now in the ascendancy, and that gave them an opportunity. It may come as a surprise to Owen to learn that the French government was eager for an alliance. Of course, he may have understood the dynamics of what was going on politically, but the likelihood is, is he may not have realized how advantageous it had gotten for him. One of the biggest things being the death of Charles the Bald in April meant that there was no strong... Burgundian to sort of defend their slightly more pro-English side of things. And because of that, they now had an opportunity to get something they may not have gotten only two months previously. Some scholars gave a couple of other reasons. One, Owen had already been working with the French, and they may have, have built up good relations over the last year as Welsh forces grew more and more successful. Nothing breeds friendship like success together, I mean let's be honest, and there had been French forces involved already, so obviously there was a desire, at least within some in the court, to help them. And the French also likely remembered the service of another Welsh Owen, Red Redhand, who had been loyal to the French until his death, and someone they had supported to try and take back Wales on a couple of occasions. It had been 25 years since uh, Owen was killed, so few but the old-timers would have actually have known him, but his reputation had led him to be called Owen of Wales by the French Yavin de Gales. He was something of a mythical figure on both sides of the English Channel. Certainly amongst the Welsh, he was legendary, and certainly amongst the French, there must have been a degree of legendary nature about him. So other than an alliance of some sort, What did the Welsh want? In return, what did the French want or expect of their erstwhile allies? The Welsh request was actually pretty simple. They needed swords, shields, and general arms, as well as men. Without the weapons and manpower, Glyndwr had been unable to carry on a war-to-actually-take-over area. You have to understand, Wales is a small country with a small population, even going as far back as this period, they are massively to the minority versus the English. And so there isn't going to be an endless supply of men and material. Wales is also relatively a poor rural country and doesn't have the ability to make arms and armor and training constantly and to continue to do it over and over and over again. As a tiny country that was sparsely populated, in fact it would be much more difficult. Keep in mind that most of the towns and cities of the day in Wales, which let's be honest were mostly towns and villages, were not well populated with loyal supporters of the Welsh. They were generally English in the first instance. So with that as your example, It makes sense that they would go to the French seeking to have their industrial might effectively to help them. In fact, we have seen that Glyndor had continually requested both men and material from the Scottish and the Irish at different times in 1401, so that he could support his fight. Up until then, in fact, until 1402, he actually didn't carry on much in the way of an offensive attack. Mostly it was defensive and and slight raids here and there. It's only really from about 1402 and onward where he actually starts to carry out more offensive moves and measures that would win battles. I mean, most of the time he was guerrilla warrior and at this point is when he wanted to turn that around because if you're ever going to win the war and actually take land and actually hold it you have to have the military to do it and while the Welsh were very good at guerrilla fighting as proven by what had happened over the last three to four years it did show that they would struggle in an open conflict with the English they won one major battle in that respect but hadn't been willing to face Henry in any sort of open conflict specifically because of that fear that they would get caught out and destroyed. So regardless of anything else, that was a major talking point and a major important point for the Welsh. Owen in his treaty with the French was described importantly for the first time as a Prince of Wales. This is the first time in written documents that we have while there's talk amongst the welsh that he was called the prince of wales well before this even going back to the initial 1400 establishment of the rebellion there is no written link until this point uh as i've made mention on a couple of occasions that's likely because once owen needs to talk to other powers that are foreign he needs to talk not from the you know the standpoint of a of a military commander or as a lord in the english uh feudal system he needs to be able to talk as a monarch to a monarch and so it makes perfect sense that he would take on the principate or the prince of wales as a title the irony of course being is that before that the english got involved with the feudal relationship with welsh kings they would have been called kings not princes so in some respects i do question why he chose that particular moniker other than the fact that i guess you know Llewellyn the last and well in the great had carried the title Prince of Wales. But again, I would argue that's a feudal relationship created with the English and makes zero sense for a leader of Wales later on. I get the idea that it comes from the Latin first amongst equals, which was what the emperors of Rome initially started to call themselves. They didn't call themselves emperors. They called themselves princes effectively. But in the nomenclature of the day, it would make more sense to call yourself a king. So I do find it a little surprising that he went for that choice. But be that as it may, he did. And so that put him on par, if not necessarily an equal, at least on par from a leadership perspective with the King of England, so that he could negotiate a treaty and actually be represented as an individual country. In modern parlance, this would be like being recognized by countries when you establish a new one i to have that kind of recognition helps you to justify your existence in modern times if six or seven states with major armies and major ability to defend you recognize your existence it's a lot harder for other nations even border nations to say hey they're just rebels you know we're going to take them out well this is kind of the european medieval equivalent of that Of course, it doesn't work like that. It's not exactly a one-to-one comparison, but understand that's kind of what they were doing is legitimizing his rule and legitimizing who he was. Now, how did they do that? Well, one, they were very derogatory towards Henry. They called him Henry of Lancaster. In other words, they didn't call him Henry IV. They didn't call him even King Henry. He was just Henry of Lancaster, who basically was a usurper. And as far as at least the Orleanist ideas go, they didn't really care for the Plantagenets and didn't want to give them any sort of legitimacy because, in part, it damages their legitimacy. So they don't want the Plantagenets to have that. So it works in their favor to attack that, to take that movement away from them. And it does allow them to then go to the Welsh and say, Hey, we recognize you. You're a prince. That other guy, he's just Henry. And so it's an interesting strategy, but it definitely does work. And of course, in the way that the King of France and of course, really the the people who controlled him in, in court recognized that was to give gifts to their new prospective ally. What did they give? Well, they gave Owen a gold helmet, a breastplate and a sword, all made of gold. Something that would look brilliant in a ceremonial march, or in a display in the court, but obviously wouldn't be very useful in real life. But that wasn't the point. The point was to show the majesty of the office, to show the importance of the office, and to have this major foreign power recognize that certainly must have been something significant for Owen and something useful for him when he's going to talk to people like the Pope, you know, other important leaders across Europe. That does give him a semblance of authorization, a semblance of recognition that he wouldn't have had otherwise had he remained just basically working with other English rebels or even, to be fair, working with the Scottish and the Irish rebels. Um, If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted. Dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfasts, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats Badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welsh Pod 50 and use the code welsh History Pod 50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welsh historypod50 at factormeals.com slash welsh 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news,
1: Nonetheless, the first stage of the treaty that they were creating was begun on June fourteenth, fourteen o four, and effectively, this was a charm offensive by the French to show the Welsh that they were serious in offering support and were more than capable of helping. The French negotiators were Jacques de Bourbon, a Burgundian sympathizer, and Jean Monton, half brother of the king and the Bishop of Chartres, Montaigne was an Orleanist supporter who had been an implacable opponent of the more English-friendly Duke of Burgundy. So you have both of the vital sides in the civil dispute. It isn't really a civil war yet in this negotiation. And below them, you have a number of clerics and nobles who represent the various sides. So it's a recognition that the court needs to deal with this together but under the understanding that really the Orleanists were holding all the cards. The French delegation as a whole was, as we said, represented by both sides, and they were a formidable cadre of nobles and clergy. By July 14th, the treaty was then ratified in Paris. Owen would go on to ratify the treaty in Aberystwyth on January 12th, 1405. That would then finalize the agreement between the two sides. Despite misgivings and mistrust, the French were on board with the Welsh in one of their most important moments in Welsh history. For the first time since Julius Caesar invaded in 54 BC, we have a record of a treaty between people who resided in Wales and a foreign continental power not seeking to invade, possibly to dominate, but not seeking to invade, which at this stage would have been a first because... Typically, the other parties have always invaded. The Vikings invaded, the Saxons invaded, the Normans invaded. They didn't make treaties that one could call a fair treaty. There were points when they made agreements. I mean, you think of Alfred and his negotiations with uh, Gwyneth and Dav- and the areas of Doithbarth, but the reality is is that typically it was mostly about how can we dominate you and how do we control you and more importantly how do we steal the land that you have so this is a big change and it is something that in retrospect this could have been the start of a new alliance like the scots one that would have had consequences that might have echoed down through history like the scottish and the french but records show as henry the seventh came to power bringing with him his welsh roots the links to France stopped. Welsh no longer seemed to hold France in a special place. In fact, even by fourteen fifteen, the Welsh would once again join the English wars against the French. Maybe eagerly, it's hard to say. But nonetheless, there was there was no really holding back. Even in a Hundred Years' War, immediately following the Glyndŵr revolts, for at least a portion of Welsh society, in getting involved against the Welsh. So it's It's kind of ironic. It does make me question as to why that is. And maybe we'll find links to reasons why they would be in this position. But certainly, this would create a sense of concern um, for the English to have this alliance going. Because, of course, now all of a sudden, your neighbor, the one who you've had a dispute with for about 50 years now, and one could argue a dispute that's gone on for about 300 years now, Uh, One who is very much eager to boot you from their country and to make sure you have no involvement in their country is now working against you in in your country, as you see it. And so all of a sudden you have a reverse situation of what was going on largely in the Hundred Years' War. Yes, there were opportunities when the Scots were attacking and, and trying to support their French allies, but this is more direct. This is effectively the French coming in and working actively against the English in a way very similar to what the English had been doing in France. You know, keep in mind that the English had invaded France on numerous occasions, trying to enforce their will, trying to enforce their perspective that the Plantagenets were the descendants of the French crown that actually had the right to inherit. Now, we all know from the last episode and previous, they didn't. Not according to French law, but that didn't stop them from fighting and trying to get that agreement and trying to get that control and winning over people in the court to their side. Charles was influenced by this at times. Philip the Bold was definitely influenced by this and and the Burgundians supported largely at times the English right to be represented in France. And this all, of course, spills out of the Normans, but nonetheless, the fact remains is that there is this desire by the French to finally send a little bit back the way of the English, and this is a perfect opportunity to do that. Now, the French didn't formally agree to sending troops likely to maintain a facade of neutrality and in some ways very familiar to a cold war era where great powers rather than fighting directly engaged surrogates and supported them and then acted like they weren't there Uh, this was a very similar respect you can see that if actually if you look at what happened in afghanistan in the 1980s and also importantly in vietnam and in south korea and north korea where you had soviet troops involved in assisting s- certain powers in certain countries and you had american troops and american intelligence helping various people on the ground in afghanistan so those kind of things happen and they definitely happened here now even as they didn't send tr- you know agree to send troops as such their facade of neutrality was just that, and it was pretty clear that they were actually all in. They sent ships through the latter half of 1404 to harass English shipping and naval vessels. They were ferrying men from France to Wales across the Channel, which likely included shipments of arms. This is not the signs of someone who's maintaining neutrality. This is not the signs of someone who is not involved in the war, and in fact, if you look at what the French agreement was and break it down. It's pretty clear what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, Interestingly enough, they start off with uh, a level of addressing Owen, which I think is, is fascinating in its own right, by calling him the illustrious and most dreadful lord, the magnificent and powerful Owen, prince of the Welsh. So it gets across the idea that, you know, he is someone to be reckoned with and someone to be acknowledged, as I said earlier, as an equal. Getting to the nitty-gritty of it, the opening stanza basically says in the first place that said lords, then the king and the prince shall be mutually joined, confederated, united, and leagued by bond of a true covenant and real friendship, and of a sure, good, and most powerful union against Henry of Lancaster, adversary and enemy of both parties, and his adherents and supporters. Again, going back to the recognition that they did not call him uh, Henry IV, or even recognize in any way, shape, and form that he was deserving a position of power or recognition as an equal. Throughout the treaty, there are representations and discussions about how to respond to those who support henry be they welsh or french because keep in mind there are french supporters of the english even amongst some of the people in court and how best to deal with them and effectively i would argue that they're effectively saying that anybody who supports henry is a traitor uh the orleanists obviously are very much not happy with henry in this point in time due to his mistreatment of their the former Queen of England, as well as just his general sense of ignorance towards them and insult, whereas obviously the Welsh have slightly bigger fish to fry when it comes to this situation. Uh, But they also discuss the idea of, you know, when entering negotiations with the other side, that peace treaties won't be signed by one party, that they have to be agreed to, that both sides have to talk about it. And they do go through this quite a bit. And I think a clause, which has been pointed out by academics as being very important, says, and again, that one of the lords and the king and the prince aforesaid shall not make or take truce nor make treaty with the aforementioned Henry of Lancaster, but that the other might be included if he wished in the same truce or peace unless he is united or did not wish to be included in the same truce or treaty. And he shall determine concerning such refusal or rejection who wished to treat for the said truce or peace within a month after the one shall have signed said truce or treaty by his letters, patents, sealed by his seal. So the other big key to all of this was not only would the French support the Welsh, they would also attack shipping. They would seize any trade that's coming from england which again goes back to the commentary about they one of the big things they did right off the bat was start to attack english shipping in the english channel and as well they also agreed to act as spies for one another on behalf of each other which again would give them an opportunity to make sure that henry's movements were understood that they knew, especially on the water, what he was up to, because, of course, even now the English have a reasonably sized navy and can pretty much do things that the Welsh cannot do. So having that intelligence would be very important and very significant in trying to deal with things. And all of this kind of goes along, including they talk a bit about redress, specifically around Henry's taking power, it comes across really as, as a negotiation that that was about not so much setting up Wales as a separate country, although that was important, but also one where the English were to be taken down, Henry to be thrown out, and effectively that the French would have a say in what comes next. And I think that's significant. I think that's important. That was what the chip was for the French. I mean, if you want to talk about what they got out of this that's what they got out of it. They wanted to have an opportunity to say who the next leader of England is, and importantly to them, to put a stop to the English, always trying to raise this idea that they had rights to the French throne. And of course, as we'll go on and see in history, that obviously didn't come to pass, and the English would continue to contend for the French throne for another 50 years after this. But the attempt is even there to try and put an end to it. And that kind of thinking drove a lot of what the French were up to. I mean, the English had done a very good job of keeping France a divided country by supporting various people. And you have to understand that modern France, the borders and boundaries of what we consider to be France today are not what they were then. And in fact, they were very lucid and fluid at times, to the point where, depending on who was in control and who was in power, large portions of what would be considered the country of France were in the hands of the English, including Paris at times. So you can understand that the French paranoia and wanting to put an end to this definitely strongly influenced their reasoning. And for the Welsh, as much as I think they didn't necessarily care about that, I think they understood that that was a portion that couldn't be left out. It had to be dealt with. It had to be because if they didn't, there was no way you were getting the French on board. The French wanted that part of it resolved. The Welsh wanted, you know, their, their own self-determination. Now, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what, had, ha- what could have happened had Owen won in a later episode. But I will say that at this point, if this happened the way that both sides wanted and this actually came about that let's say in 1407 you know three years down the road when things are actually starting to now go badly um instead the french and the english def- met with the welsh support of the french and the french actually beat henry the fourth and fit and, and his son um would that have driven England into a situation where they would to have had to have made a negotiated peace with Wales, with the French, and if you took the English influence in France away at that point, would we end up with a Wales which looks a lot more like what Scotland does today wherein in, the reality of it was they still end up re-merging with England either by force or by negotiation? Or do we get a situation where, you, where all of these smaller Celtic nations end up surviving into the future and actually remain independent of England going forward? The likelihood is if you look at Europe as a whole, that wasn't going to happen. I mean, if anything, Europe from about 1700 on became one about consolidation, not about division. And so much of the territory got gobbled up France becomes France, Prussia becomes Germany, inheriting all the various smaller kingdoms in that process. Italy unites into one country. Austria-Hungary becomes a major power in that process. Russia becomes Russia instead of a number of different fiefdoms and petty kingdoms. There, there's so much consolidation going on, it's hard to argue that in that circumstance you wouldn't get an England Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, which combines into one United Kingdom, but how it would have happened and and what the divisions would have been may have been very different from what we think of and what we saw. And imagine having the cross of St. David represented in the Union Jack instead of there being nothing, because by that point, England and Wales had been united into England, and there was no separate country of Wales. So, A lot of things dynamically change out of this war that will affect Wales for, I mean, I would argue forever. But certainly the aspect of a French-Welsh victory may have had on the English as a whole in creating a very different kind of representation and negotiation and, and working with and against it would have been interesting to see whether that would have still happened, or whether realistically the English ability to outgun, outclass, out-armor themselves against the Welsh would have simply meant that they would have ended up like Ireland, where they would have remained dominated again later on down the road. Again, that's all speculation. Don't have answers, but it is something, like I said, we'll, we may look into a little bit as sort of an alternative at one point. But... Just keep that in mind that this was what the objective of the French was, to put an end to the English ability to try and control the French court. Something they had been doing pretty much for ever since the Duke of Normandy had a son out of wedlock effectively who became the Duke who invaded England. And ever after that, set up a situation like this where there was this conflict between these two sides over who was going to run. I mean, conversely, could you imagine what the world would look like if England and France had been one nation? The Kingdom of England and France, or whatever the actual name would have been, had the English actually won the day in the Hundred Years' War, how different would the shape of the world be? Because keep in mind, this is happening right before exploration of the new world comes about. We're only 90 years away from Columbus reaching, well, Hispaniola or what we now call Haiti and Dominican Republic, the that entirely changes the dynamic of the world and, and gives a new ground in which for England and France to fight over. What happens if those two countries are united and instead of fighting over it, they're actually combined going in together? How different would the world be If instead of having French support for Spain or, you know, an England which is English-speaking, we have a largely French-speaking world, because guess what? The likelihood is the Plantagenets would have kept French as the main language of England if it was a combined kingdom. So all of those questions, which you can run into and go off into all sorts of weird Google or YouTube traps, Uh, come to mind with this, because so much was on a knife edge in this point in time in our history. And it is one to keep in mind. There's so much going into this that just the rebellion in Wales is affecting in ways that that nobody involved with it could understand or imagine. That will change and spin out in ways that nobody thought was going to happen in the end, which is the fact that England basically got kicked off the continent. So... All of this is fascinating to talk about, speculation, obviously, uh, but we're going to end it there. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Uh, if you have questions there or anything, I do try and answer as quick as I can. Obviously, time differences for some of us. Can lead to separations on answers, but but I do try and read everything and, and at least try and formulate a response when I can. As we're going through the history, I can actually respond to more things because I didn't necessarily know all of this, having read through things. And at some point here, we'll, we'll go back through some of the source materials and the, and the secondary sources so you have an opportunity to understand what I'm looking at, what you might be interested in looking at, what books kind of make sense to you. It's something I've done for the Patreon community, but it's something I want to I want to do generally, and I will do at some point down the road. But with all that said and done, thank you for listening. Hope you're having a good day. Hope it's going well for you, and take care of yourselves. Until next time, bye.
0: This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at DistractionsMedia.com.